This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Hey folks, it's Ben Mathis here with just a quick favor to ask. We love having great advertisers support the show, but in order to continue doing that, we need your help. So please go to podsurvey.com kick and take a quick anonymous survey that'll help us get to know you a little better. That way we can show advertisers just how enthusiastic our audience is about kick-ass news and keep the show free for listeners like you. Even if you've taken our podcast listener survey before, the current one is new and different, and it's really important that we have lots of listener feedback, so I'd really appreciate it if you take a minute to fill out this new one. Plus, as a thank you, once you've completed the survey, you can enter to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash kick, P-O-D-S-U-R-V-E-Y dot com slash kick. Thanks for your help, and thanks for listening. Today's podcast is sponsored by Nadex. Do you want to try day trading the markets but worried about the risk? What if you could choose your maximum risk and reward up front? Well, you can with binary options on Nadex. Trade global stock indexes, commodities, forex, even economic numbers, all from one account and always with limited risk. See for yourself why over 100,000 members choose Nadex. Find out more at Nadex.com. Trading on Nadex involves risk and may not be appropriate for all investors. And now, enjoy the podcast. Hi. I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick-Ass News. I always hear people lamenting that America doesn't invest in the kind of moonshot science initiatives that inspire people anymore. Fifty years after Neil Armstrong first uttered those famous words, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind, the promise that we'd all be vacationing on the moon and sending manned missions to Mars by now have failed to materialize. But one former astronaut is daring to go boldly where no man has gone before with an ambitious initiative called 100-Year Starship which is pushing the frontiers of space exploration, ensuring the capabilities for human interstellar travel exist within a hundred years. It's headed up by Dr. Mae Jemison, who's an astronaut, physician, engineer, environmental studies professor, science literacy advocate, social scientist, and founder of two tech startups. She became the first African-American woman to travel in space when she went into orbit aboard the Space Shuttle Endeavor on September 12, 1992. And now she's getting young people excited about science, promoting STEM education, and serving as a leading voice in the discussion of the future of space exploration. Today, Dr. May will outline her bold vision for exploration beyond our solar system and the science that may make her goal possible within our century. She'll share some of the logistical and biological hurdles that 100-year Starship is working to solve in order to make extended space travel safe and feasible, and some of the milestones we'll need to meet along the way. She'll talk about why it's so important for us to have a multi-generational goal to aspire to, and why STEM education is essential to produce the scientists of tomorrow who will help us get there. Plus, she'll talk about her acting role on Star Trek, the science behind that show, and how she made it into your kid's Lego set. Coming up with astronaut Dr. Mae Jemison in just a moment.
Dr. Mae Jemison is a leading voice for science, social responsibility, and innovation. Jemison leads 100-Year Starship, a global initiative that is pushing the frontiers of space exploration, ensuring the capabilities for human interstellar travel exist in 100 years. The world's first woman of color in space, she is committed to applying advanced space technology to enhance life here on Earth. A polymath with an insatiable energy and curiosity, Jemison draws on her experience as a physician, engineer, environmental studies professor, science literacy advocate, development worker in Africa, social scientist, and founder of two tech startups. She is the 2016 to 2017 polling chair at Indiana University's Kelly School of Business and a member of Fortune 500 boards, the National Academy of Medicine, and the National Women's Hall of Fame. Dr. Mae Jemison, thanks for joining me. You're very welcome. I'm excited to be here with you, Ben. Well, I read that you were the first astronaut to appear on Star Trek, which of course created the early sci-fi version of a starship capable of intergalactic travel. Were you a big Trekkie growing up, and did that influence your interest in space? So I was an original series Star Trek fan, yeah. straight up. And I think that it was a confirmation of my interest in space, because as a little girl, I watched all the Gemini missions and launches, and I sort of knew all the word and verse about what was going on for uh, how we would get to the moon. And so what Star Trek did was to solidify that and even push us further to think about things. Mm -hmm. For me, Star Trek was one of those things that gave us a hopeful future. I remember, you know, there was the, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis. There was all this stuff where we don't even know if we're going to make it through the world and we're going to have a nuclear war. So Star Trek dealt with the issues of our time in a very interesting manner. First of all, it said we made it through, right? Right. But then it would take some social constructs problems that we were having and actually put it in the future where you could look at it in a different way. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that was really important. And it also uh, dealt with something that I always knew was ridiculous anyway, which was they didn't have any women in the U.S. astronaut program then. And I but knew that was But they did on Star Trek. I knew it was <laughs> absurd right. as a little kid. Yeah. And so, you know, that sort of is, a, is another confirmation, yeah. right? So for me, it was really that uh, really exciting piece. And so to be able to be on Star Trek years later after <laughs> actually being an astronaut was an incredible sort of circle of completion. People have asked Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson whether he's a Star Wars or a Star Trek person. And he says there's no science behind Star Wars. But Star Trek, there is actual science behind it, well, right? So, so, so Neil just stole my thunder, but yeah. yes, but <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I'm, I'm Star Trek fan, <laughs> yeah. and I think Star Wars tells a really interesting story. But what Star Trek always did was it put the science front and center. It was much of a character mm -hmm. as anything else, and I think that that's what good science fiction does: mm -hmm. is it uses uh, possibilities to help us see ourselves. It actually, science is a character in the drama. And what kind of character did you play when you were on Star Trek? Uh, when I was on Star Trek, I played Lieutenant Palmer. I was a okay. transport operator, um, and it was an episode that called... That sounds like a demotion from an astronaut. 
Well, everybody <laughs> on there is an astronaut, right? Okay, I guess. Everybody okay, fair on, enough. Okay. Everybody transport. there is Starfleet. <laughs> okay. And I was a transport operator, Lieutenant Palmer, and it was on an episode called Second Chances where there were two Rikers. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now, will the 100-year Starship be named the Enterprise? No. And so 100-year Starship is really about making sure that the capabilities exist for human interstellar mm-hmm. travel in 100 years. And I use that framework about capabilities because this isn't about, wow, we're going to have a starship built and ready to launch in, you know, uh, 2112. That's Mm -hmm. not what it's about. It's about uh, maybe just using title of the proposal, which was an inclusive, audacious journey transforms life here on Earth and beyond. It's really about how trying something really, really difficult can move us forward here Mm -hmm. on this planet. I like to think of it as, you know, the capabilities for human interstellar travel range from, yes, propulsion and energy, right? Mm -hmm. So we have to be able to go much faster. We have to generate incredible amounts of energy. And we can't do it the way we do it now. We can't go to space that way. We can't go to interstellar that way. But it also requires us to think about how do you invest for a long period of time where your Mm -hmm. ROIC may not be the same as what we're thinking about (laughs) investment now. So it means that we have to come up with new systems of thought that are really important for moving the world forward. We have to think about sustainability because if you get to Mm -hmm. go in fast enough, right, you're not going to stop off to get groceries or something like that. You're going to have to take everything with you. So you're going to have to be sustainable. We're going to have to learn so much about the microbiome, about our our bodies and our systems and how how to keep machinery working, self-error detection. And then you can even go to human behavior and governance. And psychology. And psychology. How do you keep teams together? But even more, what does it mean for life here on Earth to Mm -hmm. actually have something that far away? For me, I... You know, there's this wide range of things. So it's not just about building a starship. It's not about the enterprise. It's about how do we collectively on this planet come up with an ambition Mm -hmm. that's bigger than all of us and that, for me, helps us to see ourselves as earthlings. So it's not a hard 100 years necessarily. You're saying we would like to have the capabilities by then, but we're not talking a launch date. Because, you know, Donald Trump just had a conversation over the phone with, uh, who was it? I think Peggy Whitson, the astronaut from the International Space Station. And he asked her, how soon can we get to Mars? She reminded him that he had just signed a NASA funding bill with the goal of getting to Mars in 2030. He responded, and this is a direct quote, well, we want to try and do that in my first term, <laughs> at worst during my second term. So we'll have to speed that up a little bit. Are you prepared for that? If you have to talk to the president about funding for this, that uh, he might pressure you to turn it from a hundred year starship into a four to eight year starship. <laughs> <laughs> so here's the thing. I'm just going to say as far as 100 year starship is concerned, we have a we are holding ourselves to a hard yeah. date, not for the design, but to okay. make sure the capabilities exist. Yeah. And so really understanding and like pushing in some areas. How do you jumpstart certain disciplines mm-hmm. around energy? Or what we did was of uh, health 
and 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 carrying a medical infrastructure mm-hmm. with you. But let me go back to Mars for a second. Okay. Do Stay you feel away. a little competitive with the Mars mission? No, because <laughs> I think Mars is necessary but okay. not sufficient. Okay. For what we need to do, <laughs> right? Because this is really for me about how do we survive as a species on this planet. Mm-hmm. The reality is that the vast, vast majority of us are not going to be get off this planet. Our grandchildren, our grandchildren's grandchildren, grandchildren are going to be right here. So we have to figure out how to survive on this starship. Mm -hmm. And right now, we've been really doing very incremental things that haven't been getting us anywhere. All the capabilities required for human interstellar travel are the very same ones that are required for us to survive as a species on this planet. And right now, we have been approaching this whole thing about human life on Earth in a very incremental way, as though we have forever to do it. People have asked me, what did I take back from my space flight? So, you know, you know, boundless excitement. I worked so hard on experiments and other things, incredible work that way. But when I looked out of the window... I saw this incredible planet. I saw the moon and the stars, right? And they were so permanent. And when you look down at the earth is this thin shimmering layer of blue light, which is our atmosphere that supports our life form. And something uh, happened, which confirmed something I always believed. You know, this planet will be here. It has wonderful sights, sounds, and vistas. It will be here. But we may not be here. Mm -hmm. You know, we get it mixed up. We say save the earth. It's not the earth. It's about saving ourselves. The earth will come up with some new life forms, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Dinosaurs thought they had it going really well, too, for a while. And so this is really about how do we make sure that we have the capability so that we can survive. Mm -hmm. People think about space and they talk about Mars as a plan B. There is no plan B. There is no plan B. You know, it's really about we can extend ourselves, we can move further, but until we figure out within the next, you know, 50 years, how do we evolve sustainably? Mm -hmm. We're in a really big, uh, in a a conundrum. Yeah, and I want to ask you something about the experience of being in space and looking back at at the earth. I've always heard that astronauts come back with this sense of euphoria, looking back at the earth. It just does something to you. They all say that. So for me, I was very calm. I was, I was very Mm -hmm. centered because for me, I'd already made my peace with everyone. I told my family that, you know, if I died, this is what I wanted to do. How frequently do you get to be and do Mm -hmm. exactly what you want to do? I know that people have talked about astronauts who have this idea of the overview effect, right? I look down at the Earth and there's this really whole piece and everything and I feel one with the Earth. I felt one one with the universe. Wow. I felt one with the universe because I realized that I am as much a part of this universe as any speck of stardust. I have as much right to be here. I went through this whole process of trying to imagine myself, you know, 10,000 light years away and it felt okay. And then I thought, you know, what about if I never leave the planet again? And that was okay because we're part of this greater universe. And so that's what I really took from the whole experience that, you know, right now, 
while you and I are talking, we're in space. You know, people say that a little bit about we're made of the stuff of stars, but we Mm -hmm. have as much right to be here. And I think sometimes we forget that we're part of this greater whole. Mm -hmm. And that's, and that's what I took away. I don't think that earth is the end all be all. I don't think of it as my only home. Don't know what everything is, but I know that I have a role to play. You keep saying human travel beyond our solar system. So you're not talking about an unmanned drone. You're talking about an actual human piloted starship, right? So here's the reason why human interstellar travel is important. Because the construct, what you have to do to support human life mirrors what we have to do on this starship, this planet Earth. Hmm. If we pull humans out of the equation, then you don't have the same difficulty of assignment. Yeah, and it seems like ultimately that has to be the end goal of this sort of project, to actually get a human being out there, because we may need to get a lot of humans out there one day. You never know. Well, we may um, need that, but I think... When you think about what's needed, mm-hmm. so you have to figure out sustainable agriculture. You mm-hmm. have to feel like figure out recyclability of clothing, for example. Mm-hmm. So we have brought in people who never were involved in space exploration, deep subject matter experts, because that's my task. How mm-hmm. do I get people involved? The reason we aren't further in space now is not uh, because of lack of technological capabilities. It's because of lack of public commitment. Mm -hmm. We're not on the moon right now because of lack of public commitment. I did not get to go to Mars as an astronaut, (laughs) not because of technological um, ineptitude, but Mm -hmm. because of lack of public commitment. The public is excited about space. People love space exploration, but we haven't really allow folks to be engaged and involved. I have this saying, um, or at least 100-year Starship does it, space isn't just for rocket scientists and billionaires. You know, So yeah. I'm throwing myself <laughs> in the heap with that. Yeah. It's really about all of us because we've all looked up at the stars. We've wondered what they were. Every society, yeah. every culture around this world has had astronomers. Our mythology is based on space. Our earliest technologies are based on the stars right. and the movement yeah. of the moon and stuff. So this is really sort of how do we really take our place yeah. in the universe. Now, when you're pitching 100-year Starship to grant underwriters and lawmakers, and they ask you beyond mere curiosity and bragging rights, why is this worth doing? Is that something that you go into, some of the ancillary potential discoveries and advances that come from this? So we talk about it not as ancillary mm-hmm. um, benefits, but these are things that have to happen There's every step of the way. steps along the way that every may have other applications. We'll have other well. applications. Yeah. So let me tell you about what cool. we're doing with something called virtual human. And it was what we called a crucible, which where we want to really jumpstart a discipline that's necessary for deep space and interstellar exploration. Think about having humans on board. So you know that there's going to be issues with health and Mm -hmm. how do you keep them well. Mm -hmm. Right now, when we look at space exploration, it's based, the human health care is based on the health infrastructure here. We actually will take medicines up. We Uh will contact with people back here on Earth, whether we go to Mars or not. That is the methodology. Because you could get 
supplies back and forth from Mars in two mm-hmm. years or less, depending on what you do. So if you go deep space or interstellar, we're talking years and years and years. Yeah. You cannot take up the medical supplies to do that. Right. Microbes evolve on the skin. They're going to be uh, things that we don't know how to do. So you're going to have to carry your own health infrastructure with you. Wow. Health infrastructure includes the ability to design pharmaceuticals and therapies. It includes epidemiology. It includes clinical trials. It includes monitoring systems. Systems, you're going to have to take that with you. So we have to figure out how to wholly model that yeah. without having the the thousands and millions of people and you know assets. But imagine if you could come up with a model of human health and physiology that takes into account behavior, that takes into account epidemiology, mm-hmm. not just the heart model or liver model, but it takes into account of all of those. It integrates them. How important would that be for healthcare down here? Yeah. And the difference, how we got to that and working on it is because we brought in people who were life science experts, who were medical experts, who had never had anything to do with space. And so when they looked at the issue, they saw something very different. I think that if we had just only been working with people, life scientists who were involved with space exploration, we would have hung out around microgravity and lack of gravity because that's what we've been working on. Yeah. And lack of gravity is important, but here's this bigger system and structure that be, that includes microgravity mm-hmm. if you have that as an issue, if you don't figure out how to do it otherwise. But here's something that all of a sudden changes the way we look at things and has incredible applicability mm-hmm. here on Earth. You know, we can go f- all around this and sort of say, Every step of the way, how do we apply these things? We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with astronaut Dr. Mae Jemison when we come back in just a minute. Warning, if you're drowning in debt you can't afford, do not let the credit card companies trick you into thinking you have to pay it all back, because you don't. What the credit card companies don't want you to know is that there's actually a way to get debt-free without paying off your entire debt or going bankrupt. If you have $5,000 or more in credit card debt, you now have the right to let credit associates settle that debt for a fraction of what you owe. For free information, call 1-800-500-0351. They'll even show you how much money you could save. If you can't afford to pay off all your debt, don't let the credit card companies trick you into thinking you have to. Call Credit Associates now for free information on how to get debt-free faster than you thought possible without debt consolidation or bankruptcy. Credit Associates depends on your success and offers a guarantee, so there's no risk. For free information, call 1-800-500-0351. That's 1-800-500-0351. And now, back to the podcast. I was interested to read that as part of this project, you're studying bone growth. Now, how do you relate that to this type of mission? So the we have a lot of people involved. So some of the folks that we have actually do tissue culture. There's a, um, a professor at Rutgers University uh, named uh, Dr. Ronkio Labisi who looks at um, bone 
growth and how do you get bone to grow where you want it to grow. So she has some really incredible work there. Obviously in microgravity right now, since we don't have an artificial gravity, we're not doing acceleration where people can, you know, not have to worry about bone resorption. That's an important piece. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there are all these pieces that fit together. And what we really want to do is to really create a transdisciplinary look at things. Notice I didn't say interdisciplinary, but transdisciplinary, how you grow across disciplines for solutions. Mm -hmm. We do that by um, working on having public symposiums where we get people together writ large. We now call it Nexus, 100-Year Starship Nexus, 100YSS Nexus, because this is the crossroads of all these things that have to happen, Uh, economic investment. Um, understanding what are the some of the cultural, sociological, spiritual implications of this. We have people who are involved with, uh, deeply involved with religion, working with us, who are we're deeply involved with arts and culture, with policy, as well as those who are looking at, you know, exotic propulsion systems and uh, looking at, uh, you know, exoplanets and, you know, the wide range of mm. things, because this has a larger impact. Now, you mentioned energy. That seems like the biggest hurdle, perhaps. Um, what kind of energy would you need to accomplish this? Are we talking about some kind of antimatter rocket or, or what? So um, we need orders of magnitude more energy than we can generate with chemical yeah. to be able to go fast enough. So we're going to have to do something that is either fission Right. So you Mm -hmm. split atoms apart. We do fission now, but we don't know how to store and control that energy as well. Okay. So we have to figure that out. Fusion, which powers the sun, where you put molecules together, fission, you break them apart. Uh, Fusion, you put atoms together. That's what powers the sun. That's in orders of magnitude more than the energy you get from fission or antimatter, which is even more than that. We don't really know how to do fusion really well. We don't know how to do antimatter at all because we're really looking at how do you store it. That's the big issue. Even if you generate it, how do you store it? But imagine if we're able to go just a small step along the way for any of those. And and the storage, really, store energy. That's a big issue that we have with solar energy right now. How do you store it? Right, yeah. So that again, these so many applications right here on Earth that could come of something like this. Absolutely. As you push on this, right, as you push in these Mm -hmm. areas, then you need to have radical, what I call radical leaps in innovation. They're not the incremental ones because, you know, the incremental storage on a lithium battery just is not going to get it. It's not going to happen. So you have to come up with something very, very different. And that's the approach that we're taking. And for me, that means bringing other people in and getting folks together who ordinarily wouldn't sit at the table together. Mm For virtual human, we brought in, yes, metabolomics, proteomics, um, tissue engineering, genomics, all of that. We also brought in quantum computing. <laughs> People <laughs> are specialists in quantum computing, uh, space, uh, space vehicles, um, gaming, right? Really? Because <laughs> we wanted to have this mix, about 25 subject matter experts. We put them in the room together. We sort of 
had methodologies for getting this out. And so now we have this uh, team that we're starting to look at. How do we make these things happen? How do we yeah. pull together the pieces? Because they're even, believe it or not, silos within disciplines, right? You think right. if you get a bunch of life sciences together, they ought to be able to talk to each other. Uh-uh. <laughs> you know, there are people like saying, oh, the genome is the only thing that matters, right? Yeah. And then the micro yeah. uh, microbiologists say, hold on there. You know, the microbiome is important. And, you know, and then the, yeah. the clinical folks are saying, well, you know, there's a whole different set of gene expression. And I'm looking at how do I sew this liver back together? Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, you know, I had Alan Alda on a while back who his big thing is science communication. And he said one of the biggest problems is getting scientists from different disciplines to communicate with each other and get on the same page and understand how the work of this guy who's doing something entirely different than I'm doing might actually have some crossover and be able to help me with my project and my research. Um, when I've talked with people like Michio Kaku about intergalactic travel, they've suggested that you might be able to transport a craft through wormholes or along the edge of black holes. That's not the type of thing that you would need for interstellar travel, right? Or is it? So um, intergalactic would mean being going from one galaxy right. to another. Um, interstellar is within our galaxy going from one star right. to another. So even people even talk about this is far. These distances yeah. are far. So just to get everybody a feel for what this means, because we're used to seeing these science fiction movies right. where people zip around that, <laughs> that, that, Our closest neighboring star, uh, Alpha Centauri system, 4.2 light years away. The distance light travels in 4.2 years, 25 wow. trillion miles. Light travels from the sun to the earth in eight minutes, which mm -hmm. is 93 million miles. Just sort of getting to get a feel. It's, it's a long road <laughs> trip. And that's our closest neighboring star. So Voyager, which just left our solar system, has been traveling at 35,000 miles per hour since 1977. And it just left our solar system. Wow. It would take somewhere to 60 to 70,000 years for Voyager to get to Alpha Centauri. So yes, <laughs> we have to go faster. That's where the energy yeah. comes in. And so people have hypothesized, can you do you know, the, the whole thing about wormholes? Some folks are saying, can you create a, a warp in time and space, and therefore you actually don't have to break the laws of, of how fast you can go or the laws that are... The, the idea that nothing can travel faster than the speed of light. If you mm. create this warp in time and space, then you can get it further. There's nothing in the laws of physics that say we can't do that. Yeah. Engineering has another issue, yeah. right? <laughs> Which is we don't know how to store antimatter, yeah. right? We don't know how to control it well enough. There are a lot of engineering tasks around this. Not saying that we won't get there, yeah. but the question becomes... Can we go, let's not worry about creating a warp engine, but can we go some percentage of the speed of light? Mm -hmm. And that's what's really fascinating by about some of the other projects that we sort of try to coordinate with or collaborate with. Um, the Breakthrough Starshot project, which um, is looking at can we create these small nanoprobes and push them using laser propulsion to 20% right. the speed of light yeah. and get to Alpha Centauri in 20 years? Yeah, that's really cool, yeah. right? So yes, I'm still with yeah. humans because of the other pieces. But once we start doing that, then we start to see their engineering, mm -hmm. you know, that we can start to understand what the engineering means. Um, black holes, uh, wormholes, skirting the edge of them, creating, uh, you know, distortions in space-time. They're really interesting. 
I don't know that we can get to them mm-hmm. as quickly as we might be okay. able to propel something really, really fast, 20% the speed of light. Yeah. Which, I mean, I'll take Alpha Centauri in 20 years, right? (laughs) Would you say that's probably the most likely goal, Alpha Centauri? I don't know. One of the things that we're also looking at and that other folks are looking at is where do you go? So Alpha Centauri Mm -hmm. is the closest one. So, yeah, we, you know, sending probes there is like it brings a big smile on my face. I'm smiling right (laughs) now, right? Because that means that we've we've shook hands with, Mm -hmm. with our neighbor, right? Which is a really important. Yeah. But so people are trying to visualize exoplanets around it. Where do we go? Do you have any supplies that, you know, if you Mm -hmm. go there, so maybe you hang out there, but you're going to have to get supplies for other things. What does that mean? Are are there other star systems that may be within a distance that we could actually get to? Mm -hmm. Because if you go 10 light years out, then there are many more, maybe 50 or more star systems. Yeah, and they may be more hospitable. They may be more hospitable. There are some things that we start to say, what are the capabilities? How do we push on these capabilities? At the same time, even though understanding what's out there will also generate some capabilities. Mm -hmm. So if we're able to actually see and say this planet around such and such a star could support Terran mm-hmm. life forms, Earth life forms, yeah. assuming it's not occupied already. That generates remarkable remote sensing capabilities that we can use here. It generates remarkable insight on, on planetology. Mm-hmm. But I want to go to some other place. How do we get ready as a society to do these kind of things? Mm-hmm. I want to get into the human aspect and the psychological aspect of it, because are you envisioning this as a lifelong mission or would you see them returning to Earth within their lifetime? And what kind of toll does that take on a person? At first guess, you're probably not going to come back. Okay. However, the bigger issues in this are what do we have to do as a civilization to even be able to get these capabilities to exist? Right. So let's what not ha- get ahead of ourselves, you're well, saying. <laughs> well, you know, that's part of it. What um, what kind of governance structure do you have, mm-hmm. right? Can we think of this as a platform even to examine governance, to examine behavior and interactions in a different way? Because it's not going to be three or four people. It's not going to be five or six. I think something like this is going to be some you know, thousand folks. Because mm-hmm. imagine, you know, you're there for okay, 50 so years. so that's a big project. I think it's a big project. I don't think you're going to be there with 50 years for the same five folks. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, that would be miserable. That's the definition of hell. <laughs> okay, but, so but, you're talking about sending a whole colony, essentially. Well, that's one of the ways people think about it is, but I think I don't have the answers. Right. I mean, I could come up with a whole set of scenarios But just how when we invited folks in who are from the life sciences and medicine, they came up with a very different concept of what Mm -hmm. you need. Bringing in folks who have other uh, information becomes really important, bringing them together. That's what science literacy can help us understand so that we're developing the investments for the future. Professor Stephen Hawking has said that if there's life out there, We probably want to avoid them at all costs because they'll probably be way more advanced than us and treat us the same way that the white Europeans treated the Native Americans. Do you have any worry that by venturing way beyond our own backyard, 
we might attract the attention of a more advanced race and open a Pandora's box? So this is the reason why I think we need lots of different people involved, folks mm-hmm. who have studied societies and cultures that have a broader knowledge of the interaction between cultures. Everything that has happened on this earth, the cultures that were more advanced haven't always tried to get rid of the other culture. Right. right. So there so of course we but look at the European <laughs> sometimes it's happened, sometimes it hasn't. Yeah. And so I think that that's a reason why we have to get people who like actually study this stuff mm-hmm. all the time that that's their life's work. So there's another way that you can look at this. Could a society that is that um, bent on destruction actually make it off of its planet to another mm. star system? Which because is a lesson le- for us too. Because <laughs> the levels of energy yeah. that we're talking about, the levels of energy that we're talking about could denude the planet. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So we could destroy ourselves. If our first goal is to say, hey, we're going to weaponize this, you know, like we did yeah. with the atomic bomb. Yeah then we're in for a problem. Are we assuming that other societies said, hey, we're going to create a weapon or this mythological society that may be out there? There are other ways to approach this. So I don't yeah. necessarily know that you want to say, hey, let's keep our heads down. We're not going to say anything. <laughs> yeah. If they're that advanced, they will have already looked out and said, hey, hey, there's a planet with some water. There's a planet <laughs> with life, whatever. They yeah. might have already seen that. So But I'm not going to say that that's the issue. I think the issue when we talk about going to other places is do we encounter microbes and viruses or other things that might be that we might that might infect us? Mm -hmm. Right. That we can't that our immune system doesn't know anything about. Do we carry with us microbes and other things (laughs) that this other planet's? Yeah immune system doesn't have anything to deal with. So I think that there are other pieces besides this one idea that any advanced form of life is going to be immediately hostile and is going to try to take all your marbles. Or let me say, I hope that we as humans are evolving where we're not always trying to take everybody else's stuff. If we don't start to see ourselves as earthlings, that's just the bottom line. We're not going to make it off this planet. Mars is not a plan B. Interstellar is not a plan B because the problem is with us as humans and our philosophy. You are quite a polymath, and there are so many interesting things on your website, drmay.com, that's a little overwhelming for me. Uh, Tell us before we go just a little bit about some of the other projects that you're working on. Well, I spend a lot of time on science literacy, so I put put together a project called The Earth We Share. That was the first thing when I did, mm-hmm. when I came out of NASA almost after. Uh, and The Earth We Share was really about creating new ways of teaching science experientially and tackling that age group, 12 to 16, where kids start to fall out of science as, a, as this is what I want to do. So... In order to keep students from asking the question, what does this have to do with me, we proposed teaching science in such a way that you automatically know what this has to do with you. So we'd have kids working in teams, uh, working on projects like predict the hot public stocks of the year 2030, design the world's perfect house, how many people can the earth hold? And so we asked them to ask questions, to think about this, to work in teams, and have a whole methodology for that. And so that's one of the curriculums I'm very 
very excited about that. We um, have looked at over time um, something called Celebrating Women of Color in Flight, which was really about sort of changing how people see the perspective of who does aviation and aerospace, that around the world, women around the world are involved in aviation and aerospace. China has more uh, women pilots than any other country, which makes really? sense if you think about the fact that China has more people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but they also have fewer women <laughs> because of the one-child policy. But if you start to look at... Um, uh, India at the time, the second highest ranking person in the Indian Air Force was a woman. Really? You know, there's, there are all these pieces that I, we wanted to bring together to sort of highlight what was going on and that there were women who were uh, chief electricians aboard aircraft carriers, which these are women who don't have four-year degrees, but they're really good in math and science. <laughs> so we really wanted to highlight these things and sort of change the perspective of how people do things. I'd like to invite people to 100 YSS Nexus, which will actually be held in Los Angeles this year um, in the week of September 15th. And it's called Nexus because it's a crossroads of all those things that need to happen. The art, the science, um, the life sciences, the propulsion, the music, the communications to make this happen to help us see ourselves, to be able to push further. How exciting. We, we do something called the Canopus Awards for Excellence in Interstellar Writing. And the Canopus Awards are really about communicating the story, um, communicating it through fiction and through nonfiction, right? Wow. Um, and, and having a certain set of disciplines that um, go with that, you know, the idea of inclusion, Mm-hmm. How do we see lots of different people on board yeah. um, and involved with this? What happens with science is determined by the people who support it and who do the mm-hmm. research. Yet at the same time, we're relying on science and technology to solve so many problems, and it's cutting a big swath through our world. And so we need more people involved. That's my task. 100-year starship <laughs> is part of that task. I mentioned that you had the honor of being on Star Trek, and now Lego announced that you are one of five women of NASA in a new Lego kit. Have you seen your Lego yet? I, and you I've think seen it's a, my Lego, a and I've been working on it. <laughs> it captured your square head and your lack of opposable thumbs? <laughs> I'm not telling anything, right. but but it's I'm, I'm pretty excited yeah. about it. It was certainly a, an honor to be included yeah. in the set. Well, great stuff. Dr. Mae Jemison, thank you so much for taking time to talk with me. You're very welcome. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Today's episode was sponsored by Nadex. Want to try day trading markets but worried about the risk? What if you could choose your maximum risk and reward up front? Well, you can with binary options on Nadex. Trade global stock indexes, commodities, forex, even economic numbers, all from one account and always with limited risk. See why over 100,000 members choose Nadex. Find out more at Nadex.com. Trading on Nadex involves risk and may not be appropriate for all investors. Thanks again to Dr. Mae Jemison for joining me on the podcast. Visit her website at drmay.com and follow her on Twitter at at Mae Jemison. Learn more about 100-Year Starship at 100yss.org or follow them on Twitter at at 100yss. 
Be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on iTunes and leave us a review while you're there. Don't forget to take our listener survey. It only takes five minutes at podsurvey.com slash kick. You can visit Kick-Ass News on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at at kickassnewspod. And be sure to recommend Kick-Ass News to your friends on your social media. And if you really want to help out, then donate to our GoFundMe campaign at gofundme.com slash kickassnews or click on the donate button at kickassnews.com. As always, I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickassnews.com. For now, though, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News. Kick-Ass News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.